Hello, and welcome to The Balance with Catlin Tucker, presented by StudySync. I'm Catlin Tucker. I'm a teacher, a coach, a blended learning expert with a particular interest in finding balance, which I talk about in my upcoming book, Balance with Blended Learning. In each episode of this podcast, I'll be interviewing a different educator or thought leader to pursue this question of balance, how we find it both in and outside of the classroom, and why it matters. Today, my guest is Tiffany Wyckoff, an experienced educator and entrepreneur. So I'm really excited to welcome Tiffany Wyckoff and talk about a little bit about our experiences as women in education, women who are excited about the possibilities of ed tech. I've had the pleasure of working on a book project with Tiffany. We wrote Blended Learning in Action together, and we've also had the opportunity to travel kind of all over working to support teachers using blended learning. So thank you so much for joining me on my very first podcast, Tiffany. You're welcome. It's great to be here, Catelyn. So I would love for you to just tell us a little bit about your career and how you got to where you are in education tech right now. Interestingly, I started my career in part with balance in mind. I was a young mom and also wanted to um, you know, have a powerful career and I loved working with children. So I decided to focus on education and thought that would lead me into being a teacher in an elementary school. And I ended up in a middle school, which I found absolutely fascinating. Um, oh, so I, I, yeah, middle school is where it's at for me, for sure. Um, taught middle school and then high school too. And um, just really had a ball trying to balance that work-life balance that we're going to talk about today while also trying to really bring powerful ideas and creativity to the classroom. I realized pretty early on in my career that I um, wasn't magically engaging to my students. I had the same realization. You did? (laughs) Yes, I imagined. I tell people all the time when I pictured my classroom, I imagined them bounding through the door, eager, excited to learn. We're going to like sit in circles and talk about literature and life. And that did not happen. No, I imagined that I was going to be just by default of being young, I guess, a cool teacher that I would have my students hanging on my every word and that they (laughs) would just be running to the fountain of knowledge every day. Um, And this illusion lasted for about a day or two (laughs) (laughs) in my class. And then I became fairly obsessed with trying to find the magic door into um, reaching my kids because mm-hmm. it just wasn't going to be okay for me to have students checking out. And I started asking really hard questions to the kids who were disengaged and learning alongside um, alongside them really how to connect. And that's what led me into many of the blended practices that you and I have gotten to have fun bringing to other teachers and other schools uh, through blended learning in action and through the work that we've done in helping teachers. Um, so that's how I came to be with Learning Innovation Catalyst Link, which was which is completely focused on helping teachers find those pathways into connecting with students. Can you like tell us a little bit about the platform? 
So our team, Link, built a platform, LinkSpring, that gives teachers that agency of thinking about what do I want to try in my class? What am I trying to accomplish? And starting from that problem-solving perspective and then giving them that just-in-time PD and template and support that would empower them to do that without them having to create something from scratch or searching you know, through unvetted resources to try to find what may or may not work in their class. So we're all cloud coaches in the LinkSpring system and the team responds to questions that teachers have as they do that kind of job embedded um, planning. And, you know, the reality is that the profession has gotten scary for a lot of teachers and there's a sense of that kind of loss of um, control of like really owning the profession and feeling empowered and respected in it. And so teachers are being asked to implement a lot of new tools, a lot of new strategies, and it's overwhelming. So if we could put teachers at the forefront of the change that's happening in their profession and really empower them to select their own PD pass, to have a voice in what's going to work for their classrooms and knowing their kids and really respect them for that, I think we're going to win. One of the things that's so, like you said, that's really scary about our profession right now is just the rate of change happening. And a lot of that is obviously a product of technology and the impact that it's having on the ways in which kids access information and the the things that they're interested in exploring and creating. And a lot of teachers ask me like, how do you stay on top of all these tools and these strategies? Like, it just seems like it's never ending. And I think we need to start reimagining our roles to some degree. And the more I work with teachers, the more I feel like they really need to embrace these different roles, you know, not orchestrating lessons from the front of the room, not explaining everything they know to kids, but instead trying to figure out, like, how how do we redefine ourselves as architects of these learning experiences, choosing the best strategies, the best tools for what we're trying to accomplish. Um, and, and then also like make it, like you said, a little less scary to be curators of information. Um, how do we make these strategies and tools more accessible for teachers so that ultimately they don't feel so overwhelmed? Yeah, it's, uh, I think part of that is going to come when we decide that we can ask students to be agents alongside us in figuring out how to navigate the right toolbox selection, um, asking them, what do you think is going to be the right resource for us to use as a class that's really going to empower and be the engine of our learning together? We've gotten to a point where we are very off balance in the way that we have power distributed within a class and responsibility for making decisions. So when when we think about what the role of a student is and what the role of a teacher is, right now, if you ask a student, what do you think your responsibility is as a student? They probably aren't going to say, my responsibility is to reflect upon where I am as a learner, think about where I need to go, set those goals, and then help decide how I'm going to get there and what resources I need. And that's the essential skill of the future. Yes. It's so funny that you say that. So the book that I just finished is called Balance with Blended Learning, which I think is why this idea of balance and really personally, my utter lack of balance in so many ways, professionally and personally, I'm definitely the type of person who just takes on and takes on and takes on more. But the whole premise of that book is 
part of why we are so exhausted and so many of us are so disillusioned is because we are kind of maintaining that really tight grip of control. And we feel all of this pressure to make all of those decisions you're talking about. And instead, if we really invited students into the process and partnered with them in a genuine way and asked them, yeah, how do you want to demonstrate your learning? What tools do you want to use? Why do you think this is a valuable thing for us to tackle individually in pairs as a class? And start to realize that the more we let go, as scary as that is, the more we may actually feel like we can handle and kind of ride out the waves that are coming at us in terms of all the changes happening in education. Because kids really should be our genuine partners in learning. Like it's their learning journeys. They need to be active, engaged participants in that journey. Yeah, making decisions. And then we can return to some sanity ourselves, right? Yes. And strike a better balance when we don't feel like we have to be the um, providers of every single bit of information and knowledge and have the answer and the know-how for every piece of the experience that's going to take place in a learning environment. It really can allow us to enjoy just partnering with students and co-creating the learning experiences together. If we can shift some of that responsibility to the student, we never really disempower them as agents. Kids come into school extremely curious and with the expectation that they're going to explore the things that they're curious about. And Mm -hmm. then we sort of, you know, just slowly over time, actually it's not even that slowly over time. It's pretty right away that they learn that they don't make important decisions in their learning journeys. And if we can do better at empowering that agency from the beginning, then what we're also doing is we're modeling that kind of thinking for students so that then when they're outside of school, they actually have the toolkit to think about what am I, what am I experiencing, reflect upon their life choices and make smart decisions we all, how many times do you hear when you're talking about blended learning, but what about all the screen time and how do we help kids balance? Although I get it. Teachers realize that if you allow kids that degree of engagement in the process, process is going to be messy and it's going to look different for every kid. And then there's that concern of how do I make sure they're all doing what they need to be doing? How do I make sure I'm getting through the curriculum in a time that I'm supposed to get through it? And so again, I think it's, I wonder if we're prioritizing the right things in classrooms for teachers' mental health and well-being, but also to like keep that spark and curiosity that kids come in with going as they progress through school. If, if that's dying out, that's an enormous red flag. But if you look at any of the research on motivation, the more agency and autonomy that a human being has, the more intrinsically motivated they are. And so as we kind of lock down our classrooms and take that intense control, we, we indirectly kind of have a, a negative impact on that motivation for students, which is too, it's sad. I think ultimately what the first part of this conversation is really getting at is the imbalance of power and responsibility in the classroom. So often in traditional classrooms, teachers are designing the lesson, they're implementing the lesson, they're responsible for assessing everything that kind of happens in that lesson or all the work that's created in that lesson. 
And very rarely are students asked to lean in, think about their learning, assess their work, make key decisions about their learning. And so as educators, I think we need to ask ourselves, what can we do to truly partner with our students and give them some responsibility in the classroom? How can we make them active agents and allow them to make some of the key decisions that are happening in terms of their learning experience? It is sad. And what we're modeling is really a fixed mindset when we set out to be perfect in our practices instead of having a tinker and explore and fail forward and growth mindset. Our student, we can talk about growth mindset all we want and that, you know, balance of, you know, striving while also being mindful that learning is a process. Um, But if we don't actually model it for our students, they're not going to truly understand and they will remain in a fear mode of if I don't perform and I'm not perfect, then I'm not good enough. But if we as teachers can embrace like and tell our students, how about we try this new strategy together? What do you think we should do to prepare to make it the best it possibly can be? And what might happen when we try it? And if it doesn't work, what should we do about it together? I think sometimes when we we kind of accept that traditional role of the teacher as kind of this fountain of knowledge or the person guiding an entire lesson from start to finish, this very step-by-step lesson, we ourselves lose a little of that curiosity because we see the path of the whole lesson. There's no there's nothing that's going to come up that might surprise us. Whereas if we took more of an a communal inquiry approach to investigating topics and pursuing projects, I think it would not only increase the curiosity, the lean-in factor, the motivation for kids, but it would also make our days more exciting as teachers. It's it's not super exciting. I, I remember the early days of teaching where I did. I had my linear agenda on the board and we marched through it in every class. And sometimes it was multiple classes doing the same thing. And by the end of the day, I was like, oh my gosh, I just want to go home. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so tired and I'm so bored with that lesson I just did X number of times. You know, and leadership has a role to play here. As a, as a leader in a school, I used to have this golden plunger that I would give out to teachers if they tried <laughs> something and it failed. And it was, it was a celebration. It was like, we should be definitely having people try new things and feeling comfortable with saying, well, when I tried this, this is what happened as we do celebrations of things that really worked magically because that embraces the whole learning experience and it models to our students what they should expect in learning in life. You're not going to get it right every time. No, I'm like having a vision of what if you, because I, you, you were an administrator for how many years at a blended learning school? Oh, a decade. Okay. Like what if administrators really did like dedicate a chunk of time, every single admin meeting to handing out like a golden plunger or saying, hey, who gets the golden plunger? Like who tried something, had an epic fail that we can all dig into and brainstorm around where you could say, oh my gosh, I tried this. It was awful. Like how could I make it better? And then all of a sudden you have you're tapping into that collective intelligence of educators in the room and saying, help me make it better. And I don't know that there's that level of vulnerability and honesty and troubleshooting and just like, yeah, honesty around our practices and the fact that it can always improve in school communities. And I think that's a real missed opportunity. 
Yeah, we do a lot of work with schools around culture building because what we're really asking teachers to do when they become innovators in their classroom and go into action research is to take risks. And you need to have a certain amount of trust built within the school community and camaraderie over helping people get that collective wisdom that you mentioned in place before you can really expect people to listen when you say, you know what, it's okay, take a risk. Well, I'm not going to if I don't feel safe. So the golden plunger is one of the strategies I think is really helpful. And there are a lot of proxies for that. This idea of making schools a safe space to fail is a really important one. And I think a lot of teachers aren't willing to shift their practices if they feel it is unsafe to take a risk, experiment, potentially have a lesson that bombs. And so how can leaders and schools help to develop this culture where teachers feel safe taking risks and where risks and continued learning and experimentation are valued and celebrated as opposed to being scary and often lead to kind of a punitive outcome if it if the risk if the experimentation doesn't go well and so that's something i think that leaders and schools really need to think about how are we sending messages to teachers that it is okay to take risks and fail and really model that growth mindset for students So I would love to steer the conversation because I loved how you talked about maybe like we're focusing on the wrong things because I am, I'm like you, I am an achiever. I'm a bit of like a climber. It's always like, what's next? What can I do? Instead of thinking about, okay, I could do that, but how is that going to impact like the rest of my life and how I feel and my energy and all of those things? Right. Because we're both committed to doing really important work with people who I hope really benefit from it. Right. And so I don't want to take a step back from that because that that has led to achievement, I guess some would indicate success or achievement in my life, um, in my career path. But I think that what I've figured out over the course of really just a few years is how to do that in a way that is balanced, not just for myself, but also for my family and for our work team right? Because we have to set the culture, whether we're in a school as principals or, or in a classroom as teachers, um, in our families. For, for me, it's as a co-founder of a, of a team that um, we have to really model not putting the wrong things at the center. And, you know, that's, that's something I've become really passionate about. I just have this notion of like, what if we measured success by completely different metrics? and said, you know, instead, what is the quality of my engagement right now? And I can have a very high quality engagement while I'm coaching somebody. And and I can be creative on my runs, which are for me a very important part of my balance is that working out and that fitness and it keeps me really grounded. And I can bring that energy into my workspace. And I think that we should do that more in modeling. I mean, we have a, we have a, you know, a social emotional crisis in our schools. You know, kids are, are more kids are not okay. They're not feeling emotionally well. And Mm -hmm. that is very frightening. And it, screen time gets blamed a lot, but we're not modeling the balance. We're taking a pass sometimes at not doing the blended practices that would model the balance of the way that we use screens and the purpose of when we decide to use them so that we're not in consumer mode. 
and we're not taking the time in class to do things like you did, you showcased how you transform your grading to do the grading in class mm-hmm. alongside the students. So your dedication to having that be quality feedback to that student didn't change. And the achievement outcome of having that student learn also didn't change. But the quality and the balance of the interaction of you not taking that home it, you know, to your family time and that student getting to do that work with you in class, that's a balanced game changer. Yeah. And I would actually say that it had that shifting of feedback where kids were right there and I'm literally giving them feedback as they're working or we're literally talking through, these are the assessment scores you're getting and this is what I'm seeing in your work, had a huge impact on their academic achievement. But what was so fascinating is those moments where I was next to kids, you you understand that they feel seen in that moment. They feel supported in that moment. They know you're there to help them. And it had a radical impact, I think, on their levels of anxiety. Because, you know, when you do something in isolation and then you turn it in and somebody takes it away and, like, marks it all up in isolation and then just gives you back a grade that you're left to digest in isolation as a learner that's terrifying. And so it's a very it's a very opaque process and so trying to figure out how to make it more transparent. I'm not going to lie, it came from an absolute point of selfishness for me personally just because I had been taking so much work home with me. And you're right, it bled into time where I needed to be making dinners. I needed to be hanging out with my kids. I I should have been reading and kind of furthering my own informal education. And so many educators do that where the the school day doesn't end. It just follows them indefinitely in these crazy workloads that they they carry around. Um, And I do wonder if we were really putting our, our own health at the center, like our feelings of satisfaction and engagement and connections with others, whether that's our family, our friends, our students, what kind of impact that would have on our lives. Yeah. I mean, we do this exercise with teachers when we talk about the evolving role of the educator. We say, if you ask people who are not educators, what is the role of a teacher? They talk a lot about knowledge transfer. I mean, basically they're like, you have to teach the skills and the skills have to get in and the students have to show the skills and that's all transfer. And guess what? Technology actually, that's king of transfer. This is not the game that we're in. And real educators who have been sitting next to a student know that that's not teaching. Teaching is when you are in connection mode. And so the game we play is how can we get more and more into that connection mode? And what you did with that example of changing the way that you were graded, grading papers is you took that activity from a transfer mode that's like a transfer activity. I gave you feedback and now you're reading isolation and you made it a connection activity where there's emotional currency at play. And when you and I both figured out very early in our careers, kids trade in emotional currency. Mm-hmm. Every time we get a chance to sit down and connect in small groups or that one-on-one time that you get from a really rich blended environment, we definitely get more gains on both the social emotional well-being of the child and also the academic outcomes every time right absolutely yeah and i i just feel like it also just um you know thinking about the arguments that i hear 
against blended learning, against classroom innovation, and this, what we're modeling in our class. We talk a lot about that. Um, I'm so glad to hear, I can't wait till your book comes out, the, bla- the Balanced Blended Learning. Is that what the title is again? Balance with Blended Learning. Yeah. Balance with Blended Learning. Um, because blended learning gets a bad reputation for mm-hmm. being very screen centered. And it's really not. There's a big intersection in social emotional learning and blended learning because what the models do is give you more of that connection time in small groups and one-to-one pullouts during class time, not kids coming to you during lunch to share about what's going on in their life like they do in Mm -hmm. after school, staying until you kick them out. You actually get that connection time in class and we get to model and teach the balance that is so lacking in our consumer mindset towards technology. That's what kids are born into. The point you make about modeling, whether it's modeling screen use for a child, our own child, you know, so when I'm home with my kids, it's screened down. I try not to be on my phone. I want to be present. I want to be making dinner and having dinner together. And in the classroom, if we use screens as a, you know, a babysitter or a way to get them to be quiet, like watch this, put on your earphones, and we don't show them how powerful their connectivity can be, accessing information, learning how to think critically about that information, collaborating with the kids sitting next to you, using tech as a tool, but tech is not the focus. So when I work with teachers, my mantra is you need to balance the online with the offline. You need to balance the individual with the collaborative. And the more we think about that when we design a lesson, the more we encourage kids to use technology as powerful tools to connect, to learn and access information, to create things that they care about, then all of a sudden, I think you're going to have students who go into their own lives and they use technology wildly different than maybe they would have. They won't be just consumers. They'll start to become kind of active agents, creators, investigators using their devices as well. And we are not um, doing the best job as a profession in helping teachers understand the shifting role uh, and and the value of that connection time during those blended lessons and the value of pointing out, like just raising the awareness that students have around what, how am I engaged with technology? Am I in consumption mode, which it's fine to be sometimes I'm watching a video, that's I'm consuming something, I'm learning, but I'm not creating something. Am I in creation mode, right? Am I in collaboration mode? Look at all of the different facets of how technology interacts with us as humans. And if we can raise that mindfulness, I mean, kids are already doing this on their own. They're just not aware of the different ways that they're interacting. And so when the kids are on devices in the class, that's exactly the time when teachers are up and talking with kids, conferencing one-on-one, pulling out small groups to have that discussion and that check-in and really, really getting the pulse on how are kids doing Mm -hmm. on a well-being level, and also how are they doing academically. 
This conversation about how we're using screens in the classroom is an important one because I think educators, as they design lessons that integrate technology, have to be asking themselves, am I using screens to simply keep students in a consuming mode? Are they just consuming information? Or am I also using devices, technology to connect students, to encourage communication and collaboration and creation? Because I think as educators, we really need to be modeling dynamic use of technology. So Tiffany, Given that this is kind of a podcast that has an eye on helping teachers, educators think about the aspects of our profession and our personal lives that may be off balance and how we can begin to make adjustments in our practices and our daily routines to kind of reestablish balance in these areas. Do you have any advice, whether it's professional, personal, combination of both that you would want to pass on to teachers? Gosh, I think if if teachers could walk in to this school year or to the next day in their class with the goal of asking students more for how they are experiencing the learning, what they might want to learn, I think that the balance of that agency that we talked about and the responsibility of what's on the teacher and the responsibility of what is on the student would come better into focus. So that's one thing with, um, with students in the class, just kind of getting that student input whenever possible and bringing the balance of that voice back into the learning space. And then just as a lifestyle balance, I just think it's really great to check in with other people in our lives. I have, um, you know, a very good friend that I asked, I tasked to say, can you let me know when I'm not breathing when I'm talking? <laughs> and, um, and in, in that, of course, we're breathing when we're talking, but it comes from like a different place. And when I get into busy bee mode and I'm not yet aware that I'm off balance in that moment, it's helpful to have a family member a good friend, a colleague to say, you know, to give you a, a cue, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because we know when we're, when we're spinning in busy bee mode outside of work hours and we're taking a lot of work home and we're not getting sleep and we're feeling run down, we know we're off balance, right? So just figuring out what, I mean, you did it what am I doing with my time that is causing me to be off balance? I'm doing this thing. How can I change that one thing? Yeah. Well, for me, it's a lot of things. For a a (laughs) lot of things that I am trying to wrestle with, although it's interesting that you say you tasked a friend with letting you know if your breathing's different because my husband, so we just celebrated 15 years together. Congratulations. Thank you. He's a very patient man. Um, He will point out when I start saying, okay, okay. Like I start talking to myself about like, all right, on to the next thing. And he's like, Catelyn, you're, you're doing that thing where you're telling yourself it's okay, which leads me to believe you're not okay. And you're overwhelmed. So having somebody who knows those cues or you can tell them I do this when I'm overwhelmed, please highlight it for me is actually a really simple, but maybe kind of a brilliant way to go about trying to reestablish that equilibrium when we're feeling like totally overwhelmed. 
one of the things I, I wrote about in my book, and you you highlight it brilliantly when you say, let's teach kids to think about how they're using technology or what strategies are they employing in this moment is really that metacognition. And I don't think in classrooms we are really teaching kids how to develop those metacognitive muscles. Like how do I slow down and think about what I'm doing, think about my learning and evaluate what's going well? What is not going well? What strategies am I using? If they're not working, what have I used in the past that might work? And really encouraging them to be curious about their own process. And I have definitely done this with my students where we have routines in place to teach this. And I'm not going to lie, they do not like it because it takes time and they got to think about stuff. And often there's like a reflective component where they're video reflecting or they're writing or some aspect of capturing that reflection. But what you end up having is more empowered learners who understand themselves on a much deeper level and are able to be so much more successful moving forward once they've built up those kind of metacognitive muscles. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up metacognitive awareness in the classroom. We absolutely have to help students develop those muscles, not just for their well-being, but also for their ongoing life success. That is going to be the number one skill, I, I think, for this uncertain future and of the job market, just the ability to reflect and to say, you know, what has worked for me in the past? Where do I need to go? How do I get there? But guess what? We have to start with helping teachers do that. Yeah. That is a muscle that has not been, um, you know, it's atrophied over time for us as adults in our cohort of, um, I'm not going to say where we are in our age group, um, <laughs> because that wasn't a skill that was valued. And now well, a lot of the work that we do um, is to help raise that metacog- metacognitive practice for teachers, for yeah. them to start with reflection. And that's based on model of generative change by Dr. Anita Ball, who's done wonderful work in helping teachers to start from that point of reflection mm-hmm. around what is really happening in their class, what is happening with them as, as a professional, and asking questions like, what strategy might be there for me within my zone of proximal development for me to try? And what has worked in the past? Who can I rely on for help? And that way they are themselves going into that, you know, metacognitive uprising and awareness and that leads to agency. And also they're modeling it for students, right? Exactly. If we could go back to our classrooms and say, you know, I have been trying to figure out every time we do this activity, this is what our experience is. And I would love for this experience to be a different way. Why don't we do, why don't we paint the way it should look together? Um, what it, let's reflect on how it's been going. Let's envision a new way that we could make it more engaging or um, make it more organized. Whatever the underlying discovery opportunity is and really enroll students in that shared metacognitive awareness as a class, that would be golden outcome across the board. Absolutely. And I don't even, I don't even know if it, I think for most teachers, they totally inherently get the value of reflection of metacognitive awareness. 
I think for many of us, it's the time issue. I'll be really honest. It wasn't until I started writing a blog and I felt pressure to like publish one every week where I slowed down and I started thinking about like, wow, that was an awesome activity project. I'm going to blog about it. And through the process of writing about it, I realized, hey, during this moment, we tweak this or, oh, I learned this or, oh, I'd adjust this. But it's again, it's creating that time and space to reflect and not necessarily carrying that home. But as you're saying, maybe make it a communal endeavor where there is class time dedicated to this process of individual reflection, shared reflection for the purpose of improving this experience for everyone. I love it. And in faculty meetings, time for reflection. Oh and PLC my gosh. meetings, yes. time for reflection. What's working? What can we do? Who's having fun? How can we collaborate? Yes. That would be such a, because we can't ask teachers to make more magical time that they don't have. We have to set aside the time to give people that reflection window and self and shared reflection being very important. You can't do it in isolation. Agreed. So from now on, admin meetings, golden plunger with group troubleshooting session, time for metacognitive skill building as a individual shared group, and maybe all of the announcements we can just read in an email. We can. We can flip it. (laughs) Well, I want to thank you so much for joining me. This was super fun. Yes, it was, Catlin. Thank you so much for having me. So over the course of our conversation, Tiffany made some excellent points, and I just want to revisit them here at the end of the podcast. So I think the first point is really this idea of balancing power and responsibility in the classroom and how do we use agency and more of a partnership approach with students to create that shared power, that shared responsibility. So teachers aren't so overwhelmed and students are hopefully more excited about the learning happening in the classroom. The second point is this idea of modeling growth mindset as educators. So students can see us taking risks, troubleshooting, failing, recovering. And then the other part of that is really a a shout out to leaders about proactively cultivating cultures on school campuses where risk-taking is valued and celebrated. The third point that really resonates for me in this conversation is the idea of balance in terms of how we design our lessons so that we are making time not just to talk at students, but to really sit side by side with students and support them, and that we don't just use technology and screens to transfer information, but that we also use them, that technology, in dynamic ways to connect learners so they can appreciate the power of online resources and the opportunity that technology gives them to communicate and collaborate and create in really exciting new ways. And the fourth point is about helping students to build their metacognitive muscles so that they can be true partners in the learning. I think on the flip side of this too is we as educators need to be committed to our own metacognitive practice. How are we reflecting on our lessons and our experiences so we are continuing to grow in our practice? And for any group of teachers, whether it's a PLC or just kind of an ad hoc group, 
group, I am going to include a series of questions along with each podcast. So if you want to listen to the podcast together or individually and come together and have conversations about some of the topics that are covered, you are welcome to use those questions as a guide. Thank you to StudySync for producing and sponsoring this podcast. StudySync is committed to helping teachers find balance in their lives by providing them with a robust multimedia ELA platform that simplifies lesson planning, automatically differentiates tasks for learners at different skill levels and language proficiencies, and blends online and offline engagement to help students develop as thinkers, readers, writers, and speakers. StudySync's most recently released product, Sync Blast, expands the company's scope to include an emerging supplemental digital inquiry solution for social studies and science classrooms. Visit studysync.com for more information or visit the link in our show notes. By the way, the views expressed in this podcast are my own. Thanks again for listening in.